So the Gospel of Mark begins this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Translation, you wouldn't invite John to your dinner party. But here's what his message was. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If I were to say to you the words, I have a dream, what would you think of? Martin Luther King Jr. I love that you answered. Nine o'clock was like just kind of staring at me. Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr., right? Okay, so maybe it's the, the grainy image uh, of the video of him giving the I Have a Dream speech with the Lincoln Memorial in the background. Maybe it's the famous photo over his shoulder with his hand in the air with the crowd of thousands in front. I Have a Dream makes us think of the speech. But, but maybe if we take a second longer, maybe we start to think about the marches. Maybe arms locked together into Selma. Maybe we think about peaceful protests. Maybe we think about fire hoses against people that were gathering. Maybe we start to think about schools being integrated, so, so little African-American children being escorted by police into school, public school, for the first time. Maybe we begin to think about something bigger than just the words, I have a dream. That's how words are. Oftentimes, they make us think about things far bigger than the words themselves. Mark in his gospel, unlike any of the other gospels, just jumps right in. It's kind of as though Mark just can't wait to get the good news out. It's just like, I just have to tell you. It's like good news out of a canon. He just goes for it. And it begins with a very few words from the prophet Isaiah, also from Malachi, written 700 and 400 years before Jesus was born. But they were words that when the first person heard them, the first hearers of this gospel heard it, they would have been more than just the words, prepare the way for the Lord. Yeah, there are those words, but, but they would have meant something more. The whole story of Israel, God's people, would have flooded into their mind. They would have realized that, wait, this is, this is the dream. This is the promise that had been talked about. And this was very common for Jewish people. Every time they gathered together in families and in groups, at celebrations, at festivals, they would talk about this story, this dream, this promise. You know God's gonna show up again. You know he's gonna come back again. Just like he did when we left Egypt. When we were wandering through the desert, how he showed up in a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire to guide us. He's gonna do it again. He promised, and I know he's going to. And so this dream began talked about. So when Mark says, prepare the way for the Lord, the whole story of Israel would have flooded into their minds. But just like they might not have, we might not expect how God's going to do that, like how God is going to show up. Because the very next words are these. At this time, Jesus came 
from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. When Jesus is baptized, which is a, was a Jewish practice in that day, it's now been handed on by Jesus to the church. When Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn open. They rip open. The reason for this is because that's what love does. Love is always loud. It always cuts through. It cuts through the noise. It cuts through the pain. It cuts through the uncertainty. Love is always loud. So the voice of God cuts through the sky and says of Jesus, this is my beloved son. Five years ago, almost to the day, uh, we were uh, headed out to the beach for, for beach baptisms. We do a spring and a fall baptism every year. And five years ago, we were getting ready as a family and drove out to Bethune after the 11 o'clock service. And we got there and, and the grills were already going just like normal. And we could smell the food and people were throwing Frisbees just like normal. And we said hi to people and, and, and connected with some old friends and, and met some new ones just like normal. And then the band began to set up, and so music was playing. It was this fun, festive atmosphere, just like normal. And we worshiped together. There was a service. It was so great. And we headed down to the water at the culmination of the service uh, to, to let people, allow people to take the step of, of being baptized. And people were on the seashore moving down just like normal, and they cheered like crazy when people came up out of the water, which is one of my favorite parts of baptism. All this was very, very normal. We'd experienced it a lot of times, but there was one thing that was really, really unique about that particular baptism five years ago. My oldest son was getting baptized that day. And so it was a big day for us. There was a lot of excitement around it. Uh, this is a picture of it happening. Uh, there was a hurricane just off the shore, so that's why the wave is about to swallow him. Uh, it, it was one of those uh, times where when we were baptizing folks, we would, we would kind of ask them questions, which is what we're going to unpack today. And by the time we got done asking questions, the, the water had just disappeared, and so we had to wait for a minute for the wave to come back. And, and uh, so it was, there was a lot of waves. And in fact, Caleb at this point, uh, because of his size, right after he comes up out of the water, uh, this huge wave, this wave, uh, hits him and just almost takes him away. And so that's Abby's dad to, to, uh, to Caleb's left. And, uh, and, and so this wave almost takes him and he gets swept away, but we held on tight to him. And I just, I'll always remember that as like, that's the Christian life, right? Like, that's what it is. There, there are times when you, you, you're, just, you're just going in the, in the waves and somebody has to hold on to you. That's why Christian community is so important. That's a sidebar. That's not what I was talking about. So, um, so Caleb uh, gets baptized, he comes up out of the water, and there are people everywhere, and they cheer like crazy. Again, I love that. It's one of my favorite things. So hundreds of people cheering for Caleb, and it's so great. And the only thing I could think to do, it was, it was really kind of an impulse, is I just picked him up in my arms. He's too big now. I couldn't do it now, but, uh, but he, I picked him up and just held him, kind of, kind of his face to mine, and I just whispered in his ear with the crowd around and all the noise and celebration. I just, I just whispered, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I must have said it 10 times. I, I couldn't muster any other words. I'm so proud of you. I'm still proud of you, buddy. The first question we ask people when they come down to the water to be baptized is a question about who Jesus is. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And some of us might hear the words from, from Mark, the, the, the sky's tearing open, the voice of God coming down, this is my Son, Jesus is the Son of God. We might hear those words and say, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. We're just talking about something that I already know. 
But the skies ripping open actually was probably the second most shocking thing that happened that day. The first most shocking thing was actually the words that God said, this is my son. Remember the story. Jesus was born into scandal. I mean, his mother, Mary, had become pregnant before she was married. He was poor. They were poor. He was born in a barn. Joseph wasn't his real father, so when people kind of went talking about Jesus or saw him coming by, you can imagine they whispered, you know, Joseph isn't even his real dad. Mary cooked up some story about how God is his father. She's crazy. He was, he was the, the, the unkingly, illegitimate son of nobodies. That's how he was thought of. But God's love is loud. It always breaks through. The skies break open. Mark begins by saying, who is Jesus? He's the son of God. And that says a lot about who Jesus is, but it also says a lot about who we are and about how God sees us as well. I don't know what the world has been telling you about yourself lately, but it can get pretty loud. Maybe, maybe you have a hard time believing, even if the people sitting next to you or the people that are closest to you tell you as often as they can, like, you really do matter. Maybe it's hard for you to believe that. Let me be one to add to that voice. You matter. And if there's any voice that says anything else that's louder than that, just let it go away because that is what the creator of the universe wants to communicate to you. You matter. Here's what the rest of the scriptures say about Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that the, that, that, that the infinite God who was divine wrapped himself in humanity and finiteness and came to earth. Jesus says so in the scriptures. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. You know what this means? That the dream is true, that the promise has actually come true, that God actually showed up. The question is why? How do you do it? Paul says in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto for his own advantage. No, he humbled himself to the point of becoming a servant. And he was obedient to death, even to death on the cross. We live in a world where uh, people have a lot of ideas. And those ideas can be broadcast and reproduced and retweeted almost instantly. And a lot of those ideas, if you're on Facebook at all or even watch the news, a lot of those ideas are very critical. And the thing is, if there's something wrong with the world, having a critical voice is actually pretty important. We should be critical. But there's a big difference between being critical and having a better idea of how things should be. Jesus had both. He couldn't stand the distance between who God had created people to be and who people actually were, who we actually are. He couldn't stand that. He was very critical of it, but he also had a way to make it all right, to set the world right around us and the world inside us. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus didn't come to pay sinners back. Sinners, by the way, that's all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says. Sin is anything that separates us from God, separates us from other people, or separates us from being the people God has called us to be. That's all of us. We're all in the same boat. But Jesus didn't come to pay sinners back. He came to win sinners back from pain and death and sin by taking them all on his shoulders. See, the thing about Jesus, if you read the scriptures, if you open it up, you can't just admire him. He doesn't give us the space. 
This is a concept that I first uh, came in contact with when I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. You see, if Jesus is, is just a man, you can't admire him like you would Socrates or Plato or Philo or Moses, for that matter. He's either in a completely different category or he is by far their inferior. Because if Jesus is just a man, then he either lied like crazy and it cost him his life and it cost others their life, which wouldn't make him a good man at all. Or he's, or he's crazy, which makes him someone not worth following. But when I look at the scriptures, when I look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when I look at what his followers said about him, those that saw him live and love and die and rise again, when I look at the evidence, and by the way, there is so much historical evidence about who Jesus is. We know more about Jesus from firsthand accounts than we do Alexander the Great. When I look at the evidence, the only conclusion I can come to, the only reasonable conclusion, is that Jesus is who he said he was that he actually is the savior of the world, that he actually came to take on all the sin, all the fear, all the shortcomings, all the frailty, all the brokenness of all people so that people can live. When you come to the water for baptism, we first ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? The second question, do you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation? This second question of baptism is about what's going to guide us? What are we gonna put our faith in? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we live by faith and not by sight. And a lot of us think, well, that's a command. It's a command, live by faith and not by sight. It's not, it's an observation, it's a fact. The idea that we don't have a faith or that people can live without faith is actually completely a misnomer. We don't have a choice. We do live by faith. We do have a choice, however, in what we put our faith in. There's no such, life, no such thing as a life not built on faith, but what we put our faith in is a choice. We live in a world that pretty steadily feeds us a diet of telling us that we're not good enough, and then at the same time telling us, but you know what? You could be better if you just bought this, if you just consumed this, if you just looked like this, if you just moved this way, if you just had this thing. You're not good enough, but you could be better. And the reason we buy into it, one, is by sheer volume, but two, because we believe that eventually we'll find freedom in that. Eventually we'll get to the end of the rainbow if we consume enough, if we buy enough, if we look right enough. Eventually we'll get there and we'll be free. That's why we buy it. And it can happen so easily in such small ways. Let me give you an example. Have you guys seen the new iPhone 8 commercial? It's mostly just like pictures of the iPhone from the side, like spinning around and it's like real shiny. And the first couple times I watched it, I was like, well, that's ridiculous. They're not even giving me any information about the phone. After the 47th time though, I was like, you know what? I didn't realize I needed it before, but I probably do need to take low light pictures. And that seems like really important to me all of a sudden. And it is shinier than the one I have now. Mine's kind of dirty, it's been that old case. Like, I think I need that thing. I got so uh, involved in it and realized like, I can't afford the new phone yet, what am I gonna do? I just downloaded the song from the, from the commercial so that I could kind of like relive it. It was like sa satiating my uh, desire to have this new shiny thing. And then the thing about that is, you know, a couple years ago, when I got the other phone, that was the shiny one. And now just a couple years later, it's not the shiny one anymore. All of a sudden, I'm buying into the idea that it's not good enough and that I'm not good enough and that I need more and more and more. Consumerism is the nice word for that. 
But not to overstate the point, the logical end of that is addiction. But there is an alternative. There is an alternative faith to build your life around. There's another time in the scriptures that tell us that something was torn open. We know that the sky was torn open at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is baptized. The sky tore open and God, God's voice said, this is my son. But there's another time. When Jesus dies, the earth itself seems to be communicating something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. The earth shook. The sky grew dark. And then Matthew tells us this. The veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, from the heavens to the ground on which we stand. Something else was torn open. Here's what a temple was in the ancient world. Depending on what God you worshipped, you would have a temple. And people would travel from all over the place to come to that temple to see a little bit more about that God. You would learn something about the God that people worshipped at that temple. And so the temple in Jerusalem was to the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so people would come and see it. But there was one place that people really couldn't get to called the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God's character was thought to dwell in a, in a unique way. And only the most pure, only the most holy, only, only the most righteous, only the best could get through into the Holy of Holies. What they had to pass through was the veil. The veil was a clear marker of who was in and who was out. When Jesus dies, it's as though he wanted to give one final definitive marker to the unstoppable, unquenchable love of God. And he says, you know what? What if we just tear the veil wide open? What if we make sure everybody knows that the presence of God can flood out, that this idea that the gospel is, if you get better, God's waiting for you over here, is completely false. The gospel, the, the good news that Mark seems so eager to get us to is that right where you are, God loves you. And he can't stand the distance between you and him. And so he'll come all the way toward you. That's what his love looks like. If you've never heard it before, Jesus' sacrifice says you're invited. You're loved and you're invited. You don't have to put your faith in some things. You can put your faith in a someone who gives grace, who says love won't stop coming after you. It'll never, ever stop. It'll keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. That you would never fall too far away for God's love to reach you right there. When we put our faith in him, his sacrifice for our sake, the grace of forgiveness becomes ours. Not earned, but a gift. This is what the Bible means when it says salvation. We get freed up from this idea that we'll only be good enough if we get more and more and more and more. If we look this way, if we buy this thing, we get freed up from that idea to realize we're loved right where we are. And maybe you heard that a long time ago. I mean, maybe that's something that you heard in, in church when you were a kid, or maybe you've got a, a sweet grandmother who, who told you that story a long, long time ago, and, and maybe you believe it to some extent. But it's been so long ago, it seems like a, like a distant memory. And mostly you've been going through life just trying to figure out what you need to place your hope in on this given day to get noticed, to get loved. What do I need to buy today? How do I need to look today? What do I need to say today to get approval? And maybe that's what's guided most of your life. Or, or maybe 
you, you realize this truth, this idea of grace, and it's so attractive, but you're like, I just keep falling short. I'll be in here now and I'll hear it as truth and I'll walk out that door and I'll fall short again and I feel like it's been a thousand times. Make it a thousand and one, the veil's torn. Nothing can hold back the love of Christ, nothing. You are loved and you're invited in still. This is why we walk to the water. When we walk to the water, we affirm that voice from heaven, what it says about Jesus, that he's the son of God. But we also walk to the water because the veil is torn and what that says about us. It makes a statement about who we put our faith in. So baptism isn't about receiving salvation. It's a response to salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, but we can respond to that. The first question, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? The second question, do you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation? The third question, before someone is baptized, is it your intention to follow him all the days of your life? Paul, in Romans 6, Paul wrote the book of, of Romans, talks about baptism, and he talks about the symbolism of what happens when you go down into the water and then are brought back up when you're baptized. He says, don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So the symbol of being plunged into the water, immersed into the water, and that's what baptism means, by the way. In the, in the Greek, it just means immersion. When we go down into the water, it's one, down into the water and then back up. It's one where we start to pattern our life after his. We die to ourselves, putting ourselves at the center. We're trusting anything else, any other faith that we can build our life on, and we're raised to a new life, the one that we're made for, the one that reflects him. That's what love does. It changes us. It takes us from death to life. And you might hear all of that and say, I get it, I do. But, I, but I'm just not finished. I'm a mess. I got, I've, got, I've got all this going on and I've got all these things that I gotta straighten out. And then once I get it figured out, like I'll, you know what, I'll totally go down to the water once I get things a little bit more straightened out in my life. I'll clean up a little bit and then, and then man, I'm in because I love, I love what you're talking about here. No. That's the beauty of baptism. It's not about what we do for Jesus as much as it's about what he does for us. You don't have to be all right. He is. My hope is that every single person that gets baptized, uh, got baptized at the last beach baptism, is more a follower of Jesus, more Christianly, more a reflection of his character today than they were that day. Baptism isn't about arriving, it's about realizing. It's about realizing there's no IQ test. There's no height restriction. There's no age limit. There's no race requirement. There's no socioeconomic group that you have to be in to be acceptable to God. That's what grace tells us. You're loved. And commitment to that belief, that faith, the scriptures tell us again and again and again, and honestly, we know it to be true, is always lived out best in community rather than in isolation. If you have a box to pick up, there's always better to have someone there to help you. Like we know that just in general, and it's true in our Christian life as well. Commitment to our belief is always best lived out in community. Our faith is personal, but it was never ever meant to be private. 
And there's this really wonderful accountability that happens when we go public with our faith. That's one of the core functions of baptism. That's why we do it together. That's why we make sure all of Summit, not just each individual campus, like all of Summit, as many people as possible can be there to watch and to hold accountable and to celebrate with you taking that step. A few years ago, I was, I was on my way out to the beach and I, I pulled in across the street. There's a parking lot across the street from Bethune Beach where we do the baptisms. And uh, I was getting out of my car and a guy yells down to me uh, from, a, from a deck on a, on, of his house. He's got a two-story house across the street from the beach. He says, man, I'm really glad you guys are back. And uh, I thought maybe he, he didn't know who I was. And you know, there's a volleyball court over there. I was like, I don't know who this, who this guy is. And he, he said, you're with the church, right? And I was like, oh yeah, I, I am. And, he said, man, I love it when you guys come. And you could tell, like, he was, he was locked in. He was going to be sitting there for a while. He had, like, a little cooler beside him and some snacks. Like, he was, he was going to be there a while. And I feel like he'd been there for a couple hours already. But um, so he, he was telling me, uh, he, he was telling me, he's like, oh, I love it when you guys come out here. He's, he's like, oh, I've got a great church out here. And I was like, oh, that's so great. And he's like, but I, I never miss a baptism if you guys are in town. He says, every time you guys come out, it reminds me uh, that, 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 uh, that I remember, I just have a chance to remember God's good. And he's still changing lives. And I was like, yeah, amen, man, it's awesome. And, uh, and it was this really cool moment. And, and, uh, but that really stuck with me. That stuck with me ever since. That there's something about us going out together, whether we're the ones walking into the water or we're standing on the shore, there's something about us going out together that helps us remember that God is good and he still changes lives. That's why we do this as a rhythm. That's why the rhythm of it is important. That's why we take the step of baptism once, but every chance we get, we should remember it anew. And we should celebrate for people, and we should celebrate for ourselves the truth that grace has been extended to us again and again and again. That's why the rhythm again and again and again. God is good, and he still changes lives. There's one thing to do this in the privacy of our own hearts, to say, I, I believe that there is sin in the world, and I believe that Jesus came to take on that sin. And I believe that he is a savior. That's one thing. It's a very different thing to walk out into the water in front of your church family and say, I want to follow Jesus. I understand what he did on the cross was for me and my sins and where I fell short and where I'm not who I want to be and where I know I'm not who he wants me to be and I want to follow him the rest of my life. And I want to do it with these people as much as I can. Those are two very different things. So taking the step of, of baptism, like some I hope will be doing a week from now, or being with those who are taking the step, which I hope all of us are doing a week from now, it draws us together and it fosters this different type of thinking in a world that tells us, you know what, you're not good enough, but you could be better. There's an alternative thinking that says, you don't have to be enough. Jesus was enough for you, and you're loved. So keep coming, and keep coming. This type of thinking is, is as different as it is attractive. Just like the guy who sits out on his patio every beach baptism, he just wants to get a piece of that good news. And we should too. So we create a rhythm of baptism together because it's easy to forget that God's dream, God's dream of, of love showing up for us actually happened. 
and it actually happens. And we need that rhythm of returning. So if you haven't taken what is traditionally called the step of faith, if you haven't chosen that alternative, not to put your faith in some things, but to put your faith in someone who extends grace to you, I can't encourage you enough, do it. And here's all it means. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you know everything. In fact, I think that's a good thing to admit. It's just saying, I don't know everything that comes next, but I know trusting Jesus with what comes next is better than what comes next without him. That's it. That's the step. And then get baptized and let us celebrate with you. Make that statement publicly. And maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time and you've never taken that step. I encourage you, do it. Jesus invites his followers to do it as a step of obedience, as a step of rhythm, for our lives. And so if you haven't been baptized as an adult and you're a follower of Jesus, if you can say yes to those three questions, take the step. And we'll cheer on like crazy as you do, not just at the water, but here as well in community. We'll cheer you on as you live out that commitment to follow Jesus. And if you've taken this step and, and you've been baptized, join us at the beach. It's a really important thing, and it's important that we create a rhythm of celebration. And what's better to celebrate than people experiencing new life and the one that they're made for? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the power of your word that can cut through all the noise, all the uncertainty, all the clouds, and can tell us who we are and whose we are. I pray that every single person in this room hears your voice as Jesus did on the day of his baptism. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm proud of you. I pray that that truth would move us to respond, to be people who create a rhythm of celebrating our faith lived out, our faith committed to, and that we would be people that reflect your character in this world in a way that is good for us and good for others as well. I pray this in Jesus' name.